My name is Kyle, everybody, and this is Uplift, and it's the conversation if you're joining us on Sunday. I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, if you're not going to catch us one of those two ways, uh, this message is also going to be on our podcast Anchor Point, so if you're listening uh, from there, uh, so glad that you're here. I want to, if you're here in the room, you can see our notes section on the back of your order of worship. There's nothing there. That's on me, all right? So you can draw, you can doodle, you can do whatever you want to do there. Um, we'll have some prompts on the slide. Some people like that. Um, it, it's no sweat off my back if you don't, but you're, you got a, you got a blank page tonight. Get after it. Do whatever you want to do. Uh, we're in a new series here on the conversation and uplift called Counselor, Comforter, Keeper. Those three words are from a song called Wonderful, Merciful Savior. Um, love that song. And this is a teaching series on the Holy Spirit. Those three words, uh, refer to the Holy Spirit in uh, that song. And this series really starts with the assumption um, that often believers have some uncertainties about the Holy Spirit, uh, such as what Paul witnessed in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Paul found some disciples there. And when he asked if they had received the Holy Spirit, I want to show you um, what their reply was. Acts chapter 19, verse 2, they said, no, we've not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Pretty important that he calls those people disciples. They were followers of Jesus. They were just ill-informed. This could be you, actually. It's okay. It could be someone that you know. It could be someone who's well-versed in Scripture, a great giver. It could be a faithful disciple of Jesus, someone in your connection group or your Bible class, someone who's had access to great teaching, uh, but also has some big questions about the Spirit of God. I don't claim to be able to answer all of those, and I don't want to make that claim, but I do think that this teaching series is going to give us some hope. That's, that's my hope. My hope is that you have some hope, some direction, and some peace, knowing that you are surrounded by God's Spirit. In our first session a couple of weeks ago, we discussed that the word Spirit, the word for Spirit, is the English translation of two different words in our Bibles, and both of those words uh, when translated literally from their respective languages, means something like breath or storm. I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating. God is an unstoppable, overwhelming force with which there is no comparison. And his presence in our lives, as indicated by those words, is exactly the same. His presence, his spirit, his breath, his storm, it gives life, it gives new life, it gives us a new family. It's the very air we breathe, but it's a breath of God that overtakes us. I hope that uh, if you missed that, you can find that message on our podcast or even online and give it a listen. As we start here in this message, let's start by talking about movies and novels. You like movies? You like books? That's what we're going to talk about, specifically we're going to talk about 6,000 movies and 1,700 novels. So we're going to be here all night into the next day. Researchers from the University of Birmingham in Birmingham, England, decided to discover what was the most attractive and profitable story arc in the world. It's a big undertaking. They came up with the answer, and this is how they did that. They analyzed over 6,000 movie scripts, read through each of them, line by line. 
And then, because of science, they used the scripts to combine a data set with each film's gross domestic revenue in the country where it was released. And then they gave a strategic and mathematical, I'm doing all this to impress you, you should be impressed, mathematical ranking of each sentence in every script. By the way, this is each sentence of 6,000 movie scripts. Each sentence was given a positive or a negative value. And then what they did is they matched each sentence and its diagram to the story arc in the film, and they created a profile for over 6,000 movies. Can you imagine that job to watch movies all day? That's a dream job. Maybe not. They discovered through this six basic emotional profiles in these 6,000 movies. Now, that's not necessarily a surprise, but it is confirming because those six basic emotional profiles, those six basic story types, were also analyzed by a similar analysis of novels, 1,700 novels were analyzed by a research team from Washington State University. Completely separate study. They had nothing to do with each other. They used a similar system, a scoring system, but instead of analyzing sentences, they analyzed words. Every word of all 1,700 novels. Unbelievable. And they gave those words either a positive or negative ranking. And across both of these studies, both of them, completely unrelated, discovered the one story arc, now there are six of them, that is the most profitable and the most attractive and the most appealing. And this story arc is called by writers and English majors, it's called Man in the Hole. Man in the Hole. Now, this of the six story arcs is, is, is this. The main character experiences fall in the story, and then they experience a rise. In other words, in other words, the protagonist endures some really, 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 really bad things, and then through some various circumstances, those things get really, really, really good. Uh, the story arc has famously been called, you probably heard this, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. You've probably heard that before. This story arc is the highest grossing films of any story arc in the world. Any of them. You want to lump these in, like especially with movies. It's movies like The Avengers or Finding Nemo. Even The Godfather uses this story arc. Here's my opinion. I think it's the most famous, the most profitable, the most appealing and attractive for one reason. Because it is God's story with humanity. It appeals to us because we know this story. The story of humanity with God is the story of failure and then the story of redemption. And it's the story of how God's presence resurrects humanity along the way. So I'm going to show you this by telling you the story. First, let's look at the fall. I'm going to show you this. It's pretty cool stuff. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. Let's start here tonight. We're going to read through, we're going to read this from the New English Translation. 
When humankind began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humankind were beautiful. Thus, they took wives for themselves from any they chose. So the Lord said in verse 3, My spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely, since they're mortal. They will remain for 120 more years. Now that brief statement there, it's packed with all kinds of information, and it's found just prior to the story of Noah and the catastrophic global flood. Now, let's talk about this. The Spirit of God, kind of backtrack a little bit, the Spirit of God shows up in the narrative of Scripture at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. It's obvious in verse 2 that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, kept chaos in check, and it was waiting for God to touch the moldable clay of earth and form from it all of life. We understand through that that God's breath gives life. It gives order. That's how we get introduced to God's Spirit. But here in Genesis chapter 6, we find something pretty alarming. We find that as the result of the sin of humanity, God limits his presence with humanity. He limits it. And right here in Genesis 6, he tells his decision for giving mortality to humans. It's because we're sinners. That's what he says. More than that, it says we're born sinners. And let's follow the logic here. God can't allow his holy presence to give immortality to sinners. Can't do it. The reasoning here is pretty clear in Genesis chapter 6. God's will to do this was not because of what humans did in Genesis chapter 6. It wasn't because they had children with the sons of God. It was because of who we are, not because of what we did. Let's look again. Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. So the Lord said, my spirit will not remain in humankind indefinitely. Look at that word since since they are mortal. We're flesh and bone, and it's in our nature to sin. So what God did is he willingly removed his presence, his breath, from us. He removes from us the ability to live forever without him. That's what what happens in Genesis chapter 6. Thus, this is the fall. This is when it starts. This actually becomes obvious to people in the biblical narrative that God's presence is invaluable. You know this. God's people, the Hebrews, they were enslaved for 400 years by Egypt, which was the world's perennial empire at the time. Through those four centuries, oh my goodness, for 400 years they cried for deliverance. Men, may the Lord give us patience in our trials. They cried for four centuries for salvation. And after 400 years, God answered their prayer. And he delivered them. Story of the Exodus. Once they were safely out of Egypt, you know this story, God brought them to a mountain where he revealed to them that their rescue was one part of a two-part contract. In exchange for their rescue, 
the Hebrews must agree to worship God alone. That's the deal. That's the deal. So the Hebrews agreed. God gave them a law and the promise of blessing for their agreement to live by that very law. Thus, a covenant was born, a testament, the Old Testament. The dust from the stones upon which God wrote this law had barely been swept by the wind when God's people broke that covenant and worshipped an idol. A God from Egypt, from the very empire that held them in slavery, they made a cow. They made a cow out of gold to worship instead of the God who delivered them. God saw this. He, he noticed it. And he told their leader, Moses, that he would not give them his presence. That's what he told them. Look at this. Exodus chapter 33. Let's read the first three verses. The Lord, by the way, this is one of my most, this is my, one of my most favorite, favorite interactions in scripture. Exodus 33 verse one. The Lord said to Moses, depart, leave, go up from here. You, look what God says. You and the people, you, You've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I'll give it. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God, God had agreed to send an angel with them by proxy as a substitute. God said to Moses, I'm not going with you. Let's pause here. Can you imagine a more devastating statement to hear? to be exposed and to be alone. That God says, I'm done. And I will not be with you. There is no nightmare, no scenario worse than this. I can't imagine. I can't imagine Moses' heartbreak of hearing those words. I mean, this guy has experienced God's leadership. He's been God's mouthpiece, spoken to the most powerful leader in the world. He's watched God miraculously deliver his people through the Red Sea. He's experienced God's presence. He's heard God's voice. By the way, by the way, this voice, according to Hebrews chapter 12, was so terrifying that when people heard it, they begged to never hear it again. Moses heard it, experienced it, survived it. He knew its power. He knew its might. And then he heard this very voice say, I like you, Moses, but I don't like those people. And I'm not going with you. I, I can't imagine. The turnaround here is that Moses had the fortitude to confront God about this decision. Listen to his counter statement to God. This is from Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And look what Moses says to counter what God said. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. God just said they're yours, Moses. Moses said, now they're yours. Verse 14, and the Lord said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. God's presence remained with his people. And specifically, a little bit later, it remained in their temple. That's where it was. That's the story of the Old Testament. Until God's people broke this covenant. So as a result, God removed his presence from them. Took it away. And with the departure of his presence, so went his protection. In fact, he told them this would happen. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 19. This is right after the temple was dedicated. Look at what the Lord said, but if you turn aside and you forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you, and you go and you serve other gods, and you worship them, then I'm going to pluck you up from my land that I've given you, and this house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing will be astonished. And they're going to say, why is the Lord done thus to this land and this house. And then they're going to say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. And that's exactly what happened. Their cities were destroyed and they were taken as captives and they became a laughingstock of neighboring empires. But over the course of their history, their prophets prophets of the Hebrews yearned for the return of God's presence. So God, in his mercy and his graciousness, told them it was going to return. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 through 28, God said through Ezekiel, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with my people. And it's going to be an everlasting covenant. I'll set them in their land. I'm going to multiply them. I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's the fall of this story. But after the fall, there's the rise. Let's talk about this. 600 years later, an angel of the Lord visited Nazareth. Nazareth was a little Galilean town about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And this angel came to visit what, would, what could have been an 11-year-old girl. Her name was Miriam. And we know her as Mary. Mary was not married. She wasn't even in her fiancé's household. She wasn't part of her fiancé's familial lineage. In other words, her gender, her age, her lack of any information concerning her own family meant that there was really nothing about her that merited any divine favor that she received from God. And this angel told this young girl 
she was going to have a son. And it was a son not conceived with her soon-to-be-but-not-yet husband. Young Mary asked how this was possible. In Luke chapter 1, we find that the angel said this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. A little bit later in her pregnancy, her husband received his own message from an angel regarding his very pregnant fiance. This is from Matthew chapter 1. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what is it? Emmanuel. What does it mean? God with us. Thus the rise, the most iconic, highest grossing, most popular story arc in all of literature is the true story of God in the world. It is the rescue story of the world. It is Emmanuel, God, with us. We're not alone. We're redeemed. We're lifted up after our fall because this story is also your rescue story. Let me show you this. Like all New Testament books, words and language, it matters. Luke knew this. Wrote a couple of books, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. When he recounted the story of Jesus' conception in the gospel, in the gospel he wrote, he used a certain word in the original language of the text. I want to show you this word. It's a Greek word called epercomai. And this word means to come upon. Let me show you. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the word. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child to be born will be called Holy. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary in a miraculous way. Now, in his next book, when he tells the story, when Luke tells the story of Pentecost, which was a cataclysmic day after Jesus' ascension, it's the day the apostles would publicly testify of Jesus' resurrection and its meaning for the world. Luke wrote these words spoken by Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same word. Same word in the Greek language. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus used the same word to describe the return of God's presence that the angel used to describe the conception of Jesus because of God's presence. The Spirit of God would come again upon the apostles. With this anointing, Peter, overcome by the Spirit of God, said this in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. And in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream 
dreams, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Your rescue story, it's the same. You're lost. I'm lost. Hopeless. Aimless. Fallen without the presence of God. We are, as the story arc says, the person in the hope. But with the Spirit of God, we rise into this miraculous transformation. It's yours. You're redeemed. You're rescued from the whole, or even better said, you're rescued from the grave. You're rescued from the grave. The Spirit of God is given to you, and it gives you the power to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. It's your rescue story.